Good morning. My name is Kelly Scott. Uh, I'm a pastor here at Trinity. Uh, I'd love to meet you after the service. If, you are, uh, are you, if you're new to Trinity, I'll be uh, out in the back um, on your way out. Uh, I'd love to meet you if I've already met you before as well. Uh, but in this Advent season, um, we, we are taking a break from a sermon series in the book of Genesis. And we're slowing down to, to spend time in a passage that actually shares much in common with the first few chapters of Genesis and sheds much light on the first few chapters of Genesis. And that passage is the opening or the prologue to the Gospel of John. Now some of you perhaps thought that that we were already going slow enough through Genesis, uh, but we have slowed down even more in John to allow time to really sit in and digest the first 18 verses of this Gospel. Our focus today uh, will be on verses 9 through 13, but we'll read again the first 18 verses. Uh, If you would turn with me in your Bibles, or you can follow along in your order of worship. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for the teaching and receiving of it. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning because you have not left us in the dark. Lord, your word is light. Your word brings light to our hearts. Your light opens our eyes that we might see you and see your glory and your love. And we pray for this this morning. Lord, that you would shine your lights into our hearts in this time as we look at your word. In Christ's name, amen. 
to give you a little uh, preview of where we're, we're going today, uh, we, um, we're, we're looking at the part of John's prologue where he's, he's moving from, from talking about uh, the light of the Word of God, the Son of God that has, that has always shone in the world to, to the entrance of the Son of God into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. If, you have, uh, if you've ever been to uh, Alaska uh, in the summertime or somewhere really far north, uh, maybe I've been to Alaska in the summertime, um, maybe, maybe Scotland, um, I'd love to go there in the summertime. Um, if you have a cottage or castle there, not picky, but uh, would love to go to Scotland in the summer. But anywhere, somewhere really far no, north, um, you, you know that the light always shines, Right? Uh, I actually just verified that this morning, that uh, if, if you go on and you look at the, the civil twilight after sunset and before sunrise, it just says the rest of the night, right? It just says the rest of the, because, because it is always shining. And then the sun rises, right? And, and, and so this is, this is a little bit of a picture of what John is talking about, right? The, the light of the word of God has always shone through creation but now in the person of christ this distinct brighter light has come to us god has revealed himself more fully and this is the part of the prologue that we're looking at this morning now i want to give you a little bit of a heads up um, that that the next few minutes might seem to some of you uh, like more of an in-depth bible study uh, which some of you may love and some of you may feel that you didn't sign up for this morning uh, but I promise that it will help us to get where we're going. Two weeks ago, uh, Chris preached on the first five verses of John, where, where John makes it very clear that Jesus, the Son of God, did not come into existence when he was conceived in the womb of Mary, but rather that he is the eternal Son of God, the eternal Lagos, or Word of God, who is before all things. And Chris spends some time explaining, as, as much as we can, the reality and mystery of a God who is eternally three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet one God, same in substance, equal in power and glory among the three persons. We also saw in these first five verses the pre-incarnate work of Jesus, which was twofold. There was the work of creating and sustaining, uh, verses 3 and 4, all things were made through him, in him was life. And then there was the work of revealing, the, the light shines in the darkness. Like the sun at the center of our solar system, which both sustains life, right, and gives out light to reveal what God has made, John is saying that in an ultimate sense, Jesus is of the life and light of the world. Then we saw last week that John the Baptist, who's the subject of verses 6 and 8 and the last and the greatest Old Testament prophet, he also testified to the pre-incarnate or eternal existence of Jesus, as we saw in verse 15, which we just read, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Even though John the Baptist was a little bit older than Jesus, he's saying he was before me. He has always been. 
And this context is important for us to take into account, into account as we come into verses 9 to 13 today, because it helps us to see that, that John is still thinking about and delighting in these cosmic, eternal realities at the beginning of this section and as he transitions into speaking of Jesus' incarnation, his coming into the world in the flesh. In verse 9, we see this cosmic scope in the words, the true light, which gives light to everyone. Dutch theologian Gerhardus Voss points out that this Greek verb translated gives light refers to a subjective enlightening of all people. And so this could only point to a universal knowledge or conscience given to all of humanity, part of what we know as, as general revelation and not a saving knowledge of Christ. And then in verse 10, we find that Paul is still talking about the whole world that Jesus has made, or that was made through Jesus. And this cosmic scope in verses 9 and 10, in turn, informs our view of verse 11, describing the decisive moment of Jesus' incarnation. And here's why that's important. There are many wonderful pastors and theologians whom I respect deeply uh, who believe that verse 11 is referring to Jesus coming to his own in the sense of his own Jewish people. And, and that's, that's okay. It doesn't change the meaning of the passage too much. But given the immediate context of verses 9 and 10 and the broader cosmic context of John's prologue as a whole, it seems much more likely that Jesus' own, in verse 11, includes the everyone of verse 9 and the world that was made through him of verse 10. And this means that we are all included in verse 11 when it talks about Jesus coming to his own. If we understand the passage this way, there are some other things that fall into place nicely as well. Verse 10 and verse 11 may now be understood as parallel statements about the world's response to Jesus' work as the revealing light of God. Verse 10 speaks of his general revelation through what has been made, yet we're told that in spite of this revelation, the world did not truly know him. While verse 11 points to Jesus' work of personal revelation of himself and his saving purposes, what we call special revelation, and yet in spite of this revelation, the world did not receive him. Voss points out that, that even the verb tenses of verses 10 and 11 fit this understanding. With the clause, he was in the world, in verse 10, indicating the lasting, unchanging character of Jesus' natural revelation in the cosmos. While he came... Past tense, he came, in verse 11, indicates a unique historical event in his redemption of the world. Voss adds, the issue between knowing and not knowing, in verse 10, naturally reminds us of the religion of nature and man's universal failure to apprehend the light supplied by the word of God. On the other hand, the issue between receiving and not receiving, in verse 11, <clears throat> points to a definite 
historical act on the part of the word of God whereby he aggressively made his appearance among those who were his own. By his own, Voss obviously means all humanity. The in-depth Bible studies mostly over. That's are over, okay? This, this global scope of Jesus' work of revealing and redeeming leads us to see two things in our passage this morning. We need, I think we need to see two things in our passage this morning. They're not, they're, they're, they're not fancy. They're very simple. But this cosmic global scope leads us to see that we have all rejected the light. We are all called to receive the light. And so first, we, we've all rejected the light. Jesus, the true light, was in the world, yet the world did not know him. I think that most of you, uh, at least teenagers and up, maybe younger, are probably familiar with uh, those drawings in which you can see the drawing in two different ways, right? Uh, At least some of them are known as figure ground depictions because they confuse our minds as to what is the background and what is the figure, the primary figure. One of the most famous ones is that drawing of the younger woman who's kind of looking backward and to the side, right? And you can see her, but if you look at it a different way, you see uh, an older woman who's very somber looking down also to the side, right? Um, Looks like she's weathered a number of of years and and hard things probably in life. Um, I discovered this weekend that that this drawing is actually affectionately known as the wife and the (laughs) mother-in-law. Didn't know that before. We all know what I'm talking about. A lot of you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Um, there's also the duck and the rabbit drawing. The duck facing left, or left, or yeah, that's left for you. Um, the rabbit facing right, depending on which one you see. And perhaps the most famous one is, is Ruben's vase. Uh, depending on what our eyes see as the ground or background, and what our eyes see as the primary figure, we'll either see two faces looking at each other, or we'll see a vase in the middle of the drawing. And I actually just ha- so happened to have a copy of it here. Um, so I don't know if you can, most of you, I think, can see that. If you can see the communion cup, you can see this, right? Um, so, right, there's this vase in the white, but the dark is two faces looking at each other, okay? Probably a lot of you have seen this. <clears throat> My point uh, with all this is, is not at all Edgar Rubin's Uh, or the Gestalt psychologist point in observing people's perceptions of these drawings. Nonetheless, I think that Reuben's vase can help us to understand what John is saying in verse 10 when it says that they, we, did not know him, though he was in the world. You see, we're, we're like people who can only see the background of the two faces in Reuben's vase. We see the complexity and, and beauty of, other, of humans. We, we see each other. Uh, we, we see other creatures and their glory, and we see the immensity and majesty of the natural world. But our eyes are blinded to the figure in the middle of it all, to which they all point, and apart from which the contours of the background would not exist. We, we miss the vase. We miss the treasure in the center of it all. 
We miss the God who made it all because our hearts and minds are too busy fixating on everything in the backdrop. Historian George Marsden, summarizing some of Jonathan Edwards' thoughts on the light of God's revelation in creation, says this. Truth, a dimension of God's love and beauty, is part of that quintessentially bright light that pours forth from the throne of God. Every other pretended light or source of truth is as darkness if it keeps God's creatures from seeing the great sun of God's light. The created universe is a dynamic expression of that light, yet yet sin blinds humans from acknowledging the source of the light that surrounds them. Having turned away from the true light of God's love, they now grope in darkness, inordinately loving themselves and their immediate surroundings, or chasing after false lights of their own imaginings. All of us, even today, even if we know Christ, will wrestle with and or succumb to inordinately loving ourselves and our immediate surroundings. Whether it be inordinately loving ourselves and the way that we treat the people around us, or inordinately loving our accomplishments or certain people or beauty, created beauty in whatever form it may take, so that we miss the glory and the joy of the true light through whom all of the good things around us are made. Through the choices that we have made and the loves that we have pursued, we have all rejected the light. As we've seen, John goes on in verse 11 to speak of a more personal rejection of the light. The true light came to his own and his own did not receive him. Why is this? Why is it when the treasure who has been revealed in what has been made becomes like us in order to reveal the fullness of God's glory and love for us, to make it really clear, why is it that humanity does not receive him? I would suggest to you that it's because we've gotten moldy. Mold loves darkness. It grows away from light. Mold latches on to whatever it can that will feed it, whether it's bread or cheese or drywall or plants or soil. It will latch on to whatever it can, and and it survives and grows this way. But it's actually a life of death because it generally ruins whatever good thing it's feeding on. In the same way, the things that, that we latch on to, while, while they, make us, they may make us feel like we are surviving and growing, as long as they are kept away from the true light of Christ who created them and designed them to be used in a certain way as a reflection of his goodness and beauty and abundance, as long as they are kept away from the true light, those things will actually in the end be ruined by us. We will leech the life out of them. Unlike what we would probably think of as healthier organisms, which receive light and life and energy from the light of the sun, mold is actually incapable of photosynthesis. Or most molds, at least, maybe all. Quite the opposite of photosynthesis. Mold is broken down and destroyed by light. 
And so it grows and it festers away from the light. When John says later in his gospel that men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil, he's telling us in strong language that our deeds have made us like mold. We are no longer in our natural state capable of receiving the light. As Romans 8 says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Like mold, we we don't even want the light. In fact, the light of God's glory and holiness and goodness would destroy us in our moldy state. And so instead of receiving the true light of the world, our natural response is to run away and to keep our activity in the dark, to cling to what we have left. In some, we have all rejected the light of Christ. And Scripture says that in our darkened state, we are incapable of receiving the light. And so how does it make any sense that we're then called to receive the light? Which is our second and final point, if you're keeping track. How does it make any sense that John, speaking of the whole creation, says in verse 11 that the world did not receive the true light, but then says in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. The answer is in verse 13. The answer is that all who do receive the light do not do so in their natural state. Their birth into God's family is not through natural bloodlines or more specifically through the will of the flesh, which is human decision or sexual desire, even godly sexual desire, and even more specifically through the will of man who is understood to to lead the relationship. But rather, this birth occurs uh, into the family of God through supernatural means. It is a supernatural birth from God. It doesn't make sense human sense. The question that I've, I've wrestled with, uh, and I've wrestled with this for a long time and, and then again this week, is how does it help us, how does it help us for John to tell us this? Surely he's implying that it's good to receive the light, to receive Jesus, but then he essentially says that we can't do it, that it can't come from us. That the only way is to be born of God, which we can't make happen. I wrestle with the same question when I read Jesus' conversation with the religious leader Nicodemus in John 3. And you can read along with me here um, below our main text in the order of worship. Just a few verses. John 3, 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, understandably so, is perplexed. How can a man be born a second time? And Jesus simply points it back to the same truth of the need to be born of God. How could this be helpful to Nicodemus and to us? 
He's telling Nicodemus that he needs, he needs something that he can't make happen. What does he teach us? I believe Jesus is calling Nicodemus and us to cease from trying to produce new life in ourselves. To give up our self-effort to earn the right to become children of God. Only God can do that. Only God can give us this right to be his children. You see, all of us are guilty of, of the mold problem that we discussed earlier. Latching on to, to things in the world and, and seeking to pull life from them apart from God. But in an attempt to overcome our mold problem, when we sense that something is wrong, many of us then latch on to religious activities and laws look, uh, instead of looking to God to give us life. We look to performance in, in these things, even the good and true activities and, and laws. We look to our performance in them rather than looking to God to give us life. And so just as we can ruin God's good gifts in the world by looking to them for life, we can just as easily spoil good practices of prayer and devotion and obedience by looking to our performance in them to give us life. We don't have to be outside of the church walls to inordinately love or hate ourselves, oftentimes both, by putting ourselves at the center. John saying that we cannot create this life for ourselves. Only God can regenerate this new life in us. And our calling is simply to receive the one he has sent, and to believe in the work that he has done for us. 17 and 21 years ago, uh, one of you trimmed the lateral meniscus in each of my knees. And I see you, you're here this morning. And by God's grace and good surgery, they are still pain-free. Thanks be to God. But I had two very different experiences after the surgery, which is on me, by the way, not the surgeon. Uh, we could call this the tale of a tale of two menisci, uh, <laughs> which I know sounds really exciting. If we want to get really theological, uh, we could say that, that the new life for my damaged and painful menisci, that's how you pronounce it, uh, that the new life began on the operating table. I was put under... I had nothing to do with that new life being formed in my knees. We could say it was a circumcision of sorts. Uh, the difference came in how I received or, or didn't receive the two surgeries. You see, with the first one, I, I embraced a period of, of rest after the recovery. I mean, I didn't just lie in my bed, but, but I embraced a period of rest after the surgery. There was an active passivity in receiving and believing in the work that had been done. And that new life, and as that new life in my knee took shape, I, I participated more and more in all the good things that healthy knees can do. But I received it first. I, I received it. 
With the second surgery, I thought, well, you know what? The first one went so well, and it seems like I could have pushed things a little bit more than I did and gotten back doing what I want to do more quickly. And so this time, there was no active passivity in receiving the work that had been done. There was only an active activism in trying to get healthy through physical therapy, through my efforts. And the more I continued to experience pain and discomfort, and discomfort in that therapy the more I thought I just needed to change something in in my routine. I just needed a different exercise. I just needed to do a little more. I needed to do a little less. I needed to go to a new physical therapist. And this went on for quite a while until I even started to doubt, you know, maybe maybe it just didn't work. But you know what I needed? Of course you do. I needed to stop working and receive the surgery. And when I did, I finally began to experience the new life that had begun back on the operating table. You could probably shoot a dozen theological arrows at that analogy um, if you wanted. Uh, But what I hope it illustrates is, is that God calls us not to work, to earn the right to become children of God. He calls us to receive the light who is Christ, and to believe in what he has done to give us the right to become children of God by taking our sins on the cross and rising to give us new life. A Christian is simply a person who has confessed to God their worship of an inordinate love of themselves and of the good things that God has made. Who has stopped trying to earn the right to become a child of God by religious performance and who has received Jesus. He gives us the right to become children of God. And this call is for all of us, but for all who received him, who believed in his name. And so if you're not a Christian, uh, I I invite you to to receive him into your heart and life today. And if you have more questions about what that means, I'd love to to talk more with you um, whenever you'd like. If you are a Christian, there, there are a few things that the truths of this morning's passage produce in us when they really take hold of our hearts. First, uh, these truths produce in us a a deep sense of assurance that, that permeates our lives. Because we know that it was, it was God's work that gave us new life. And God's work is not in vain. What God starts, he finishes. And so if, we, if, our, if our new life did not come from ourselves, but we were born of God, we can be confident that he is going to complete that work, that that new life will be eternal with him. And we can have this deep assurance as well because it was, it was the work of the true life that actually qualified us to become children of God. That, that word right, to become a child of God, that's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? It's actually a really strong word. It's, it's, it's exousia. It's, it's also translated authority at times. You did not squeak into the kingdom. If you are in Christ... You are in his righteousness. 
Your debt has fully been paid on the cross. And you have the right to be a child of God. He's given you that right. He delighted in giving you that right. And so there's a deep sense of assurance that permeates our lives when we understand this. Second, it produces us, uh, uh, in us a deep humility. And so I need these truths to permeate my lives more. But, but it produces in a, a, a deep humility for precisely the same reasons. Because it was not our lineage. It wasn't our family history. It wasn't our own efforts that brought us into the family of God. We have nothing to boast about except what Christ has done for us. That's it. What he has done for us. And finally, it produces in us true freedom, which is the freedom to live in this world as God created us to live in this world. Seeing him in all that he's made, he blasts away the mold so that we desire the light, so that we desire to see him in all that he has made. And so rather than worshiping it, which turns into slavery to our own desires and passions, we now enjoy and worship him through all that he has made. All the while knowing that we are deeply loved as his children. Deeply loved and accepted as his children. That, my friends, is life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for this simple reminder today through your word that in you is life and that you invite us through Christ to be in your family, to do all of life with you, to enjoy all of life with you, the God who can even give us joy and hope in the midst of our suffering. Because we have one who suffered for us, entered into our pain, and rose um, to bring us into this new life. And we thank you that we are born into your family through your work, not our own. And I do pray, Lord, that you would produce in me and my brothers and sisters here this deep assurance that would permeate our lives. Uh, Lord, would you produce in us a deep humility before each other and before you? And Lord, would you uh, give us true freedom, not the world's understanding of freedom, but your freedom as we go about this day, as we go about this week. Lord, be with us by your spirit, we pray. Amen.